0: this morning. We're going to be looking at a passage from 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'd just like to make mention we had our men's recharge uh, Friday night into Saturday. And as I look around the room, I still see all the men that were on the outing with us that are here. So good, we didn't scare everyone off. It was intended to be a time of refreshment. So I'm glad that everyone that was part of this a weekend was is back here in church. Um, but we had a really fun time. Um, stayed in a cabin that was secluded away from much of, of really anything, I enjoyed some time being outside, and had some fun while we were at it. And there was a a phrase that we kept repeating to ourselves over the course of the 24 to 36 hours because a lot of what we were doing, we were doing for the very first time. We were in a place that we weren't very familiar with and doing things, going places that we weren't, not as comfortable, but not not familiar with. And we had a phrase that we would say among ourselves and it was, what could possibly go wrong? And it was said in the most sarcastic way possible, uh, insisting that, all sorts of things could go wrong, but we're not necessarily worried about that. Uh, we were all saved, so we weren't we weren't scared about anything terrible happening, because what's the worst that could happen? What could possibly go wrong? Uh, we all knew where we were going to go, so the Lord decided to take us home on a hiking trip. Uh, but uh, we're, we were thankful. It was a really good time of fellowship. We had a great time being together. I want to thank everyone that came and thank everyone uh, that brought food. Many of the wives were very diligent in preparing food and sending us off with plenty and we had uh, plenty of food. We ate very well. Uh, We had a a really wonderful time together. So I just wanna thank everyone that prayed for us, everyone that came and everyone that helped out in some capacity. It was a really a great time of refreshment and you need, need that every once in a while to just get away, and to get alone with God and to focus back on him. At times we get a little carried away and focus on ourselves and don't see God even though his presence is still there. So I pray that it was as refreshing to the rest of you as it was to me just to get away for a few hours. Uh, As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we're looking at 1st or 2nd Kings rather, uh, 2nd Kings chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 13 in a sermon that I've titled. Actually, let me ask you this. Oh, you put it up there already. Um, I mentioned on Wednesday to the folks that were here as far as as their Bible study is concerned that I was going to be speaking on some of the things that we were talking about on Wednesday on Sunday, and I even mentioned my title. Thank you. Can anyone remember what the title was? can't be that simple. Oh yeah, you read it. Okay. Um, I'll I'll, I'll trust that you remember it from Wednesday, Uh, but that is the title. It can't be that simple. Uh, So we're going to continue looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, and we have been looking at the 10th miracle of the prophet Elisha for some time now without actually getting to the miracle itself, and I'm going to warn you we're not going to get to the miracle even today, Uh, but we're, we're inching our way there, and we'll mention that Naaman is eventually going to get healed, Uh, but let's look at a few things before we get to that, and we'll focus our attention this morning on verses 10 through 13. There are definitely some things in life, as we think about this title, that it can't be that simple. There are some things in life that appear to be much more difficult than what they really are. Even when we're told that it is quite actually simple, we struggle at times to accept that notion because what we're seeing doesn't appear to correlate with what's being told. And the reason we're often skeptical is because I think we've been fooled by this in the past, where we've been led to believe that something is in fact simple, when in reality, it's quite complicated. Several years ago, I received a phone call from a telemarketer that was trying to sell me on a cruise. And this was a while ago. Ruthie and I were just married. We were living in Florida. And. I- I have this really big struggle to hang up on people even when I know they're just trying to sell me something and no matter what response I give, they have a, a written response to throw back at me and there's no way to get out of the conversation. So I'll, I'll continue and entertain the phone call as, as long as I can. And so I did with this person. And he told me that I was randomly chosen <laughs> for a Caribbean cruise with all expenses paid. Okay. Okay who could pass up a free vacation, right? Well, that wasn't exactly my first thought. My first thought was, it can't be that simple. He kept insisting that it was just that simple, that the entire trip was free and I was the lucky winner. I hadn't even signed up for anything. You know, I I didn't, you know, fill out a card, mail it in and, you know, hope that I'm gonna win, that my name's gonna be chosen. I hadn't done anything like that. So I, I told him, I said, okay, if it's that simple, send me the tickets. Send me the tickets, and when I get them in the mail, I'll believe that it is just as simple as you say. At which point, he started to tell me that I first had to sign up for a monthly subscription and that he would need my credit card information, and that's when I knew I wasn't going on a cruise. (laughs) When I asked him, I said, what happened to my free cruise? He insisted, it's still free, he said. And this is me, I can't hang up. I'm just like, I want to hit that end button on my phone, and I just can't. So when I I asked him, I said, give me a breakdown. What is the trip going to look like? How is this free trip going to actually be free? And all of a sudden, there's all these strings attached. Uh, This free trip was suddenly going to cost me, as he's breaking things down, several thousand dollars now. And we went back and forth for a little while over the phone where I insisted that the trip wasn't free. He continued to argue that it was free. Needless to say, we've never been on a cruise. So, and every one of my suspicions were true when I thought that such a deal couldn't be as simple as they stated. And, and due to similar instances like that, and I'm sure you've all had something similar to that, but most of us are inclined to be a little skeptical when we're presented with a situation that just seems too good to be true. We're looking at what's presented to us, and we're left wondering, well, what's the catch? What's the catch? What are you not telling me? Nothing is ever this easy. There's no such thing as a free vacation. It can't be that simple. And this is the exact situation that Naaman would find himself in as he's approached by this messenger from Elisha who would go and tell him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and then he shall be healed. Now remember, Naaman had left Syria and he'd left Syria with all sorts of gold and silver and some garments, all sorts of gifts that he's going to give in exchange for his healing. He was expecting, in essence, in his mind at least, to basically purchase healing for himself. He had leprosy, and this was an incurable disease, but he was told that there's a prophet in Samaria in Israel that could bring him healing. So he would quickly find out, though, that this healing was not going to be for sale. What we previously noted in, in weeks prior is that the miracle did require something from Naaman. But it wasn't going to require money. It wasn't going to require any sort of gifts. The miracle would require Naaman's complete and utter humility before God. Naaman would have to submit himself before the one and only true God, not all the false gods that they were worshiping back in Samaria. And he would have to do as only God instructed. Naaman was used to being the one who would tell everyone else what to do. He was used to being the one in charge. He was captain of the host of the king of Syria. So he told people where to go, what to do, and when to do it. And now he's having to humble himself to a God that he doesn't even worship and do as this God says. This is not something he's comfortable and used to being able to do. Naaman would have to come to the absolute end of himself and do things God's way if he ever expected to be healed of his leprosy. So this was a big, tall ask for someone with his position and with all the resources that he has. But this is what God said it was going to take in order for him to see healing. In Matthew chapter 19 and verses 16 to 24, I'm going to read this passage. Jesus was approached, and you're probably familiar with the story once I kind of laid the groundwork for it. Jesus was approached in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 24. He's approached by a wealthy young man who asked the most important question that a person can ever ask. Listen to what the passage says. Matthew 19, 16 to 24. This is the rich young ruler. It says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the young man in that story couldn't bear the thought of letting go of everything that he had because he was worshiping creation over the creator. He was worshiping the gifts over the giver. He was more in love with everything that he had. And the thought of giving all of that up, which he had been savvy enough in the business world to gain, The thought of giving it all up to follow after Christ was just too much for him to do. Even though Christ told him he would have bountiful treasure in heaven. Pride has a way of standing as a brick wall between us and God. This young man pridefully, pridefully approached Christ and inquired on the most important decision that a person can make how can I be saved? This is what he was asking Christ. The only problem is that his pride comes out in even how he asked the question. He says, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He thinks it can be won. He thinks it can be worked towards. He's already done well for himself in probably the business world and then just built a vast empire for himself at a young age. So he's thinking, well, I've conquered the business world. How about the spiritual world? Lord, what can I do in order to get saved? Give me a task. I'll do it based on everything else that I've done. I'll get it done in no time. This man has obviously done very well for himself. And he's thinking that he can just work towards this and achieve this as well. And Christ knew the heart of this young man that it was clouded with pride and as long as it stayed that way, he was never going to be saved. So he pressed him on that issue specifically and he knows exactly what buttons to push so that the young man would identify his problem and hopefully correct it. Unfortunately, the encounter ends with the young man walking away, the Bible says, of walking away sorrowful. because he wasn't willing to set aside his pride. And what makes the matter even worse is that he thought he needed to do something to receive eternal life, when God has made it as simple as believing on him and a person is saved. In the mind of the young man, receiving eternal life was more complicated. It was more complicated. And his pride convinced him that it couldn't be as simple as what Christ had said. And this is the same predicament that Naaman found himself in here as he was given instructions on how he was going to see healing. Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. That was not the answer he was looking for. He had come bearing all sorts of money and gifts, anticipating that he would have to give something in exchange for what he was gonna receive. God was showing Naaman that he would actually get healing and get it so much easier. If only he did as he was told. The rich young man was given the same option. He could receive eternal life much simpler than doing some good work only if he did as Christ instructed him. Now we know what happened with the rich young man in Matthew 19, but notice what happened. Uh, notice how Naaman responded, rather, to the instructions given to him. Look at verse 10 and 11. So verse 10 gives us the instruction. It says, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Naaman has come on this long journey on the word of a little maid that he had taken captive from the land of Israel, but now serving in his home in Syria, ministering to his wife. He had traveled to Israel, bearing all sorts of gifts in exchange for his healing. And after finally arriving at the home of the prophet Elisha, a messenger comes and tells him to go and in the Jordan River seven times, and he's going to be healed. Done, just like that. And Naaman had already sought out, I'm sure, every doctor back home in Syria, tried probably every medication, experimental, everything, every ointment, every treatment available, probably sparing no expense, all to no avail. He traveled this far on the word of one little maid, who obviously, during the time that she is ministering in his house, had gained his respect and the respect of his wife and even their trust. And even if there was a little bit of skepticism... There was enough optimism and intrigue to bring him this far. He doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't know how everything is going to work out, what the outcome is going to be, How what specific thing is going to be told. But he's holding out enough hope that this time might be a little different than every time he's tried in the past. He hasn't been told what he's going to have to do, but up to this point, he has paid for doctors and treatments and examinations of every kind you can imagine, and he's viewing this situation like one of those, something he's going to have to pay for. The little maid had made no mention of this. She didn't say, you know, go to Israel and pay this guy this amount of, this amount of money, and then he'll give you the healing that you're looking for. There's no mention of this, but it has become so routine for Naaman to expect having to pay for things that he brought money and gifts to offer as payment. The thought of getting something for nothing doesn't occur to him, especially with how much he values having his own health back. And yet this is exactly what God is offering, free health. God is not asking for any sort of payment in return for this gift. And what he's asking for is, though, complete dependence upon him. All Naaman had to do was trust. Trust that what God's prophet was telling him to do would actually work and then just to go and do it. All he had to do was accept and believe the word of God's prophet. All he had to do was acknowledge that healing wasn't going to come through anything that he could do or anything that he could buy. It's the same message that Jesus Christ gave that rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Salvation cannot be purchased. It is not something you're going to work towards and eventually earn. It is freely given and can only be freely received. But all it's required is that you come to Jesus and receive him. The only limitation that he gives, is that it has to be received on God's terms, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Naaman has come this far, and now he hears what needs to be done in order for him to hear healing, to see healing. And notice again his response in verse number 11. says, but Naaman was wroth. He's furious. And went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Back home in Syria. If you look back at verse number 1 of chapter 5, Naaman was a great man. He's a great man. Captain of the host of the king of Syria. A great man with his master. Honorable. A mighty man in valor. He's respected. He's revered. He is just a somebody in Syria. People respect him. They revere his position. But here in Israel, Elijah, the prophet, treats him like a nobody. He doesn't come out and meet him, bow before him. In fact, Elisha doesn't even come out of the house to greet him. He sends a messenger out to meet Naaman and give him what instructions need to be done in order for him to see healing. What a slap in the face that was for a person like Naaman who had such a high position back home in Syria that the prophet Elisha can't even grace him with a little bit of his presence by even coming out the door or even waving from the window. Nothing. Nothing at all. He's traveled such a great journey bearing all sorts of wonderful gifts that he plans to give to the prophet. And the prophet doesn't even so much as step out of the house and greet him. Elisha can't be bothered for five minutes to come out and deliver the message himself to Naaman? Naaman's pride was wounded. And that's exactly the purpose. God was testing Naaman in all of this, seeking to break down his pride for him to realize he was going to need the help of God and God alone if he was ever going to see healing. There was nothing significant about the Jordan River. There was no healing powers that it possessed that if anyone washed in there seven times, they'd be healed from anything. God could have instructed him to do seven somersaults and he would be healed. The point was that God was calling on Naaman to humble himself before the king of kings. And when you think about it, it's surprising that Naaman's pride was still intact considering his wretched physical condition, which was literally just waiting for death to consume him. The man was plagued with an incurable disease and yet... The first words in verse 11 after he's told what needs to be done in verse number 10 to see healing was Naaman was wroth. You think, you think, finally I know what to do. Where's the Jordan River? This way? Let's go. He's angry. How could he have any sort of pride intact after what he's been dealing with? And yet we're told he went away angry at the prophet for not speaking to him directly. In this response from Naaman, we see the power of sin which leads us to be prideful and self-righteous and to believe that we're entitled to receive God's favor. This attitude is definitely present in the unsaved. And sadly, we see this among believers as well. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, it makes it clear that believers are no longer under the bondage of sin, thanks to the saving grace of God, but we often still allow sin to have its place in our lives. Just out of curiosity, Our memory verse from the month of June. can anyone quote to me Romans 6:14? "For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under but under grace." Every believer can claim that. We're not under the law, but we are under grace. But often we still allow sin to have its place in our lives. How many of us have prayed for some pressing need, asked God to intervene, asked God to provide, and only get frustrated when God responds to us a different way than what we originally asked him for? Anyone ever done that? I know I have. I prayed and said, God, this is what I need you to do. And God says, I'm gonna answer you, but I'm gonna answer you this way. God, what are you doing? No, 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 I don't think you heard me because when I prayed the first time, I asked you to do this. Somewhere the lines of communication got interrupted because you kind of did what I asked, but not really what I was asking for. We have a sense of entitlement, even as believers, that we expect that if our prayers go up, then they should be answered a specific way. There are times where we want to go back to God and say, Lord, I don't know if you heard me quite well. Because the way you respond doesn't fit with what I was asking for. And and then we were reminded of things like Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where we're told, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm thankful for that. How many of you are thankful that God doesn't give you what you want? and what you ask for. You know, at times we think that this is what we need, and this is why we ask for it. And then God says, you know what, I'm going to give you this instead. And we may go back and say, God, I don't know if you heard me. I I think you, you you know, messed something up here. And he says, well, just, just hold on. Just see how it's actually going to work out better for you that I gave you what you needed instead of what you were asking for. His thoughts are much higher than ours. When God called Jonah to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah put his foot down, he complained, he he argued, and he decided to do things his own way because he knew that God would have compassion on the people of Nineveh. And Jonah felt they didn't deserve it. When Jonah finally did as God called him to do, sure enough... The Lord had compassion on the people of Nineveh when they believed God, the Bible says. And of course, this made Jonah furious, as this was exactly what he didn't want to happen. And listen to what we're told in Jonah chapter 4 and verse number 4. Jonah 4 verse 4 says, Then said the Lord, and this is after Jonah 3, which talks about the people believing in God. It says, Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? Doest thou well to be angry? You didn't get from the Lord what you wanted, but is it really the right thing for you to be angry? This spirit of Naaman that we see here, where he didn't get what he was wanting, but does he have place to be angry? It's present in so many of us, and it stems from pride. There should be no place for pride in the life of the believer. Look again at verse number 11 because we see just how prideful, the the prideful spirit works. Again, it says, but Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Three important words right there in verse number 11. Behold, I thought. Behold, I thought. Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought. That was his problem. He was thinking. He was thinking. In one of my favorite movies growing up, a boy was teaching his friend to play baseball. And the friend was spending way too much time thinking about what he needed to do instead of just doing it. And the friend kept doing everything wrong. He was overthinking. He even admitted that he was thinking about it too much. And one of the friends looked at him and he said this. He said, if you weren't thinking, you wouldn't have thought that. If you weren't thinking, you wouldn't have thought that. Novel idea, right? If you weren't thinking, you wouldn't have thought that. Had Naaman not been thinking, he would never have had this thought enter his mind, which is recorded for us there in verse number 11. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Naaman had built up an idea in his mind as to what he expected would happen when he gets to the house of the prophet Elijah. And in his mind, it can only be one way. And if it doesn't go that one way, he's going to be upset. And guess what? God's plans was not, were not his plans. The prophet Elisha did not walk out of the home, did not lay his hands upon the microphone or even the the leper. And because it didn't go according to his plan, he went away angry. Thinking can often be our worst enemy. Naaman had this idea of how it should happen. I'm sure he'd heard all about Elisha by this point. I'm sure he'd heard about the many miracles that had been done by God through him, and he painted a picture of what was going to happen, what he was going to say. Is this not how the unsaved respond to the gospel? Every person has their own idea of how salvation works. Some people, like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, think that salvation is something that can be earned through some really good deed. Others think that salvation can be earned through just trying to be, overall, a good person. They think that they can turn over a new leaf. And they leave their past behind them and just go on to live a good humanitarian life going forward from this point. And whatever idea people come up with, the one thing they all have in common is that they all thought about it. They all thought about it. And unfortunately, their I thought moment came in rejection of God's word and the only way that God has established that person can be saved. Proverbs 14, verse 12 tells us, says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Many people hear what God has to say, but they continue following their own thinking. Naaman wanted to be healed. Of course he did. He wouldn't have made this long journey if he didn't want to be healed. Just like everyone wants to be saved. But it had to be on his terms. A way in which his self-respect and dignity could remain intact and his importance and position acknowledged. Many people want to be saved, but they also want to receive credit for their salvation. It is pure craziness that so many people would miss out on salvation simply because they refuse to admit that it can only be possible and be received through humbling yourself before God. You cannot add anything to your salvation. It can only be done in God's terms. Well, I don't want anything to do with it then. What gave Naaman the right to question and be upset with directives he was given from this messenger? What gives anyone the right to argue or to question God's means of salvation? When we're the ones that are looking for salvation, when he is the one that is looking for healing, and God is the one who is offering that healing and that salvation, what gives us the right to hear what God has to say, but all of a sudden establish our own parameters onto what God is actually telling us how salvation is possible? Naaman traveled this entire way to meet with the prophet who he heard could bring him healing. He was in no position to be making demands, to be questioning the prophet's means or his methods. If Naaman had no right to question the prophet, no sinner has any right to question God and his methods. The majority of the world is doing exactly, though, as Paul said in Romans 10 verse 3, where he says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. God has made it so simple, so simple for everyone, but they still refuse to come to him in faith on God's terms. Sometimes it is their pride. They're refusing to believe that God, rather that they can't do something on their own. Other times it is the idea that just God's way is way too simple. It can't be that simple. And they think that they have to add something to it. Again, they're thinking they need to add something to it. Either way, they think about it too much instead of receiving it for what it really is and, it, and, and come up with their own idea of how a person needs to be saved. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what he need to do to be saved, they responded in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it that is all. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is as simple as that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God didn't complicate it because he knew how incapable we are of doing anything. Even when Christ was here on earth, walking, talking, preaching to anyone that would listen, people still didn't receive him. Not even after they they witnessed his miracles. I know people were saved, but as a majority, as as a whole majority of them rejected him. In fact, Jesus even said in Matthew, or in John chapter 5, verse 40, he says, and you will not come to me that you might have life. He gave the opportunity for everyone to come, but he says, you will not come that you might have eternal life. Why? Because they're all thinking about another way. They're all thinking about God's way being too simple, and they're thinking they need to add something to it. And he's saying, it's as simple as just believing in me. And he says, you're not doing it. They chose not to come to him, even though they all had the opportunity to do it. They refused the way of salvation that God had established and opted instead for what they thought was right. Naaman had it all figured out in his head how it was all going to go, but God was going to require his pride to be absolutely decimated before he was ever healed. And notice what we read in verse number 12, as his pride just continues to fuel the fires of his rage. He says, Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went, and turned and went away in rage. The more that Naaman thought about this, and again, thinking is often the worst enemy. The more he thought about this, the more he convinced himself that God's way was wrong. His mind was already one of the biggest enemies that he was facing and now it would just get worse. He's already turned off when he felt that he was slighted by the prophet, not even coming out of his home to see him. Now his country is being slighted. Are you telling me that the Jordan River is better than the rivers that we have back in Syria? Have you seen what it's like in Damascus? This is trash over here. There's way better rivers back home. If all it took was just bathing in a river... Why couldn't he do that back home? Can you see the pride of Naaman here? He so badly wants to dictate the terms of his healing, even in a physical condition where he's literally dying and just waiting for it to consume him. He's still clinging to his pride. He still needs to be in control. What he doesn't realize is that he's never been in control. And especially not once he got leprosy. When a sick person goes to see his doctor, Dr. Nightgill, maybe you can tell me I'm wrong. But when a sick person goes to see his doctor, does he tell the doctor what medication is going to be acceptable to him? I mean, maybe your patients do that. But you go to a doctor for the doctor to tell you what medication you need. If you have any sort of wits to you, you're going to take and do what this doctor tells you. But what kind of a sick person goes to the doctor, hears what the doctor has to say and says, "No doc, I'm going to do it my way."
1: Why did you go to him
0: in the first place? When a beggar asks for food, should he ask the question, uh, should he question the manner in which he, he the food comes to him? Oh, what kind of food is this? Where are you getting the food from? When a guilty party stands in court awaiting sentencing, is he allowed to dictate to the judge, the terms of a sentence? Absolutely not. And yet, we who have eternally offended a holy God somehow think that we can draw up our own terms to God as far as how we should be saved. I hear what you're saying, God, but, you know, what do you think of my plan here? What do you think about my way? I feel like my way is a little bit better than yours. One commentator described it this way. He said, a worm of the earth, which is, which is us, A worm of the earth deems himself competent to pit his wits against the wisdom of God. Who do we think we are? The creation. Speaking to the creator. Dictating the means by which we're going to earn the salvation that he's offering to us. Naaman needed to realize that the Jordan River belonged to Israel's God from whom he was expecting to be healed and not from any of the gods over in Syria. But Naaman's pride was not going to yield. And so we're told at the end of verse number 12, it says, so he turned and went away in a rage. This is such an accurate picture of how so many unsaved people are when they need to be humbling themselves before God. I don't say this to discourage anyone from sharing the gospel, but this is a very common response that we get from unsaved people. In fact, it is a common response from believers as well. Are we always obedient when God calls us to do something, to go somewhere, to say something? No, we're not. Do we sometimes question his methods and and think of how we can improve on what God has suggested? Probably. Think about what it was like to be a prophet in these days. So often the message that the prophet was delivering to the people would fall on deaf ears. Not that the people didn't hear, but they didn't want to listen. And they didn't want to obey what they were being told. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. If God's prophets upset their hearers, should we as believers expect any different as we witness to the unsaved? Again, I'm not suggesting that we never go out witnessing, but don't get discouraged when people allow their reason and allow their logic to come between them and the gospel. In fact, that may be a good sign because what I've noticed is that when a person is close to being saved, there is an internal conflict that gets worse. Satan does everything he can to prevent people from getting saved. And the more a person comes under the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, the more Satan's devices are going to be utilized to wage a war within that individual. There was an inner war we see raging within Naaman here. Again, it says, so he turned away and went, turned and went away in a rage. And fortunately... A few of his servants had decent heads on their shoulders. Notice what we read in verse number 13. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. And the way that Naaman reacted to the situation was as if the prophet had told him to do something that was impossible. This was not a big ask for Naaman. Go to the Jordan River, wash seven times, and you're done. I mean, for crying out loud, he's already there in Israel. It's not as if the Jordan River was too far from him. Had he he not been so ridiculous, He would have simply done as he was told and and walked away completely healed. Had the prophet insisted that Naaman would have to do some elaborate task that would require all sorts of effort, Naaman would have completely, uh, he, he 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 he, he would have been justified in this. If he said, you know, climb to the top of Mount Everest, that would have been an appropriate response to such an instruction. But what was required of Naaman here was almost too simple. Thankfully, one of his servants speaks up, or several of them, and essentially reminds Naaman that they've traveled this entire way. They've come this far. What could possibly go wrong? Right? What's the worst that could happen? Think about how many times this whole account was almost derailed. From where it all started with the little maid back in Syria, it all seemed unlikely to even get off the ground. Who's going to listen to her? She is a captive in a foreign land. Why would she have anything good to, tell, to say to her captors? It all nearly fell apart once it came eventually to the ears of the king of Israel as he received a letter from the king of Syria. But God moved the prophet Elisha to intervene and tell the king to send Naaman to him. And now Naaman turned himself away from the prophet in a rage, and it certainly looked like nothing was going to come of this entire encounter. But look back with me at verse number 8 here in chapter 5, because Elisha gives us a glimpse into what was going to happen all along. Verse number 8, it says, And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him, speaking of Naaman, come to, now come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. In typical fashion, God was using human instruments to accomplish his purpose. And these servants of Naaman were being used by God to bring healing to Naaman. When you think about it, these servants were extremely bold and courageous to approach Naaman at a time when he is wroth, when he is in a rage, the Bible says. They didn't just come to offer him aid. They came to essentially tell him he's wrong and to do just as he was told. How would you like to be a servant of Naaman? He's the one bossing you around and now you see your boss is just completely bonkers. Are you going to have enough guts and courageousness to go up to him and say, listen boss, I hate to tell you, but you're dead wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Just as God moved Elisha to speak to the king of Israel, tell him what to do, God moved these servants to speak to Naaman and appeal to him to speak sense into him. Naaman was not leaving Israel without knowing that there's a God in Israel and that he had thoughts of mercy toward him. God first used the little maid, then the servant to uh, a servant of Elisha to bring the message to Naaman and now it was Naaman's own servants who would convince him to follow the instructions. All of this was intended to humble Naaman, the captain of the host of the king of Syria. Now, we cannot ignore the Lord's patience in all of this. God offers simple and clear instructions on how this man is to be healed and how does he respond. He's angered and he turns away in a rage. It's amazing to think that God still moved Naaman's servants to speak sense into their master. God didn't say, you know what, fine, no skin off my back. You came to get healing. You came to my prophet. He told you what to do. You don't want to do it. Have fun back in Syria. Enjoy leprosy. He instead moves the servants to go and tell the man, sir, with all due respect, we've come this far. You've been told what to do. You were ready to do something significant. If they asked you to do something significant, all they're asking you to do is to go bathe in this water. And we know it's not the most ideal situation and the most, you know, the nicest river. Sure, we have better rivers back home, but come on. Is it really going to hurt you that much to just go and bathe in the Jordan River seven times? God moved the servants to do that. He was a prideful man who refused to do things God's way and essentially was trying to dictate to God how he should be healed. Naaman didn't approach God on his knees, humbling and bowing and pleading for the Almighty God to bring him healing from this wretched disease. Instead, he turned his back on God. He turned his back on God's servants, and he he goes away in a rage. And after all that, God still fought for him. God still fought for him. We're told in Romans 5.20, it says, But where sin abounded, what happened? Grace did much more abound. Praise the Lord for that. I, for one, am so thankful that God did not give me only one opportunity to be saved before I believed on him, but that he was long-suffering towards me, that he was patient towards me, and he shared the gospel with me time and time and time and time and time again before I believed on him. God knows how stubborn and how prideful that we can be, and that is why he makes his plan so simple for us to get on board with, and he moves people to be persistent in sharing the gospel with us. It may be that the Lord has been calling you to do something, but your pride has stood in your way. Let me urge you to take a lesson from Naaman and obey God and obey him the first time. Don't have an I thought moment. Oh, behold, I thought it should be the Stop it. Let your mind get out of the way of what God is doing. You're not smarter than God. You never will be. God's ways may not make sense to you, but trust me, and this is a lesson I'm still learning. God's ways may not make sense, but trust me, God knows better than all of us, and his ways are always perfect. It can't be that simple, but it is. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have made things as simple as they are. And Lord, we don't even have the words to say just what that means to us because if we're here today and we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, Lord, we have experienced just how simple the message of the gospel is and how simple your offer of salvation is. Thank you for making it simple. Thank you for knowing us. Thank you for knowing our frame and for knowing how weak and frail and fragile we are and for not requiring anything of us that that you know we could never do on our own. Lord, I'm thankful that you sent your your only begotten son to die in our place to take all of our sin, the penalty of it, the punishment of it, Lord, (laughs) all of it, upon his own shoulders. And thank you, Lord, that he's paid it all. I pray that as we come before him and come before you, that we are seeking your righteousness and not trying to establish righteousness of our own recognizing, Lord, that you are everything and we are nothing. Thank you for the example that we learn about Naaman here and, Lord, about the pride that is probably evident within each and every one of us. And, Lord, I pray that you would just break that down so that we would see your ways and understand that what you're doing is always perfect, even if it doesn't make sense to us right away. Work on us. Lord, do the purging and the pruning that we need to be the servants that you called us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.